0: What got you there with Shondalini? Uh What got you there with Laney. What got you there with Shondalini? Uh What got you there with got you, got you.
1: Having that sort of focused and disciplined culture, when that draws in the right types of people, then the real cornerstone to success is, and I told people this all, all the time about the SEAL teams, like you feel every day getting out of bed I better show up to work pushing hard. I'm gonna try to win our workout in the morning. I'm gonna be the best at the range when we go out there to shoot. I'm I'm, I'm going to be five minutes early for every evolution because I know if I don't, someone else will. And they're going to look at me and think, hey, do you really want to be on this team? And when you have that level of positive intensity from everyone, you become far more than the sum of your parts, which is the ultimate magic to, to a great team.
0: Sean talks with Chris Fussell, who spent 15 years on U.S. Navy SEAL teams and is a partner at the McChrystal Group Leadership Institute. He is the author of One Mission, How Leaders Build a Team of Teams, and co-author of the New York Times bestseller, Team of Teams. Chris also served as aide-de-camp to Lieutenant General Stanley McChrystal during McChrystal's final year commanding a joint special operations task force fighting al-Qaeda around the globe. Since leaving active duty in 2012, Fussell has also served as a senior fellow for the National Security at New America, sits on the board of directors for the Navy SEAL Foundation, is a life member of the Council on Foreign Relations, and teaches at Yale University's Jackson Institute. If you want to know what it takes to lead and build teams, then this is the episode for you. This podcast is all about uncovering the lessons and wisdom high performers are using to better their life, and one of the most important elements of high performance is your sleep. That's why I'm thrilled to tell you about 8sleep. 8sleep is revolutionizing what a great night of sleep means. The Pod Pro by 8sleep is the most advanced solution on the market, and what it does is the Pod Pro has dynamic cooling and heating with biometric tracking so you know the exact amount and quality of the sleep you're getting. It comes in the form of both a mattress or a cover you can put on your existing mattress. Get the Pod and start sleeping as cool as 55 degrees for those people who would like a nice chilly room or mattress and as hot as 110 degrees. I'm one of the fans of the cooler mattress, so this is perfect for me. The temperature of the Pod Pro will adjust each side of the bed based on your sleep stages, biometrics, and bedroom temperature, reacting intelligently to create the optimal sleeping environment for you. So what's the result of all this? Eight Sleep users fall asleep 32% faster, reduce sleep interruptions by 40%, and get an overall more restful night of sleep. The Pod Pro by Eight Sleep is so popular, it's garnered the attention from CEOs, pro athletes, and overall high performers like yourself. Go to eightsleep.com forward slash Sean to check out the Pod Pro and save $150 at checkoff. That's 8sleep.com forward slash Sean. Chris, welcome What Got You There. How are you doing today? doing great, Sean. Thanks for uh, having me on. Looking forward to it. Yeah, no, I I feel honored to have you. This is a a conversation I'm I'm very much looking forward to, but I want to get started with when we think of an NBA player such as LeBron James or even a great musician such as a guitarist, each day they're doing and they're going to have certain drills and routines they go through to stay on top of their craft. You operate in in a different environment, in a nonstop changing business type world. What do you do every single day then to get better in, in almost that knowledge and the learning process?
1: Yeah, it's um, a comparison to LeBron James might uh, be pushing the boundaries, but uh, <laughs> I'm a huge believer in um, in the discipline of a routine, and uh, you know it's something I wish I wish I were better at. I think I'm. Uh, pretty decent. I focus on it a lot. I have good days and bad days, more good than bad, but, um, it's critical, you know, you, you, and you, you meet plenty of people that are really driven and uh, successful and they, to this point, they all have their things that they, that they do. And I think it's just a pretty common trait. Some learn just some, some in our DNA, but I'm, I'm a big believer in, um, the, what, what I, like to refer to as your personal cocktail. Like what are the things that go into your drink that you, that make it work, right? And everybody has a little bit of different flavor to it. And so when I'm working with leaders, that's the first thing I'll ask them. Like what, forget about mine, what's your cocktail? Like, what do you like to put in the mix? Um, So I know for me, it's uh, I, and uh, having served in the military in some pretty interesting places um, under physical, mental pressure over extended periods, you start to really understand yourself. So I know how much sleep I need to be uh, productive. Um, some some folks need a lot of sleep, some know a little, but it's important that you know your number. Um, I know what type of workouts I need to be doing on a consistent basis. I need I know uh, what sort of outside distractions that are helpful to me. Time reading, time with uh, just on my own, walking, etc. Time with my family. Uh, I have a wife and two kids. Um, and, and, and then other just sort of outdoors outlets, outdoors are a really important part of our, our lives. And so the balance between those for me is key. So I, I try to be, uh, you know, I set my alarm for five 30 every morning. that's when I, that's when I get moving, um, try to keep that running through the weekends, regardless. I, uh, exercise in the mornings. That's my peak time for working out. So I'm up, have a cup of coffee and then I'm, I'm hitting a workout and, uh, whether I do try to give myself at least a rest day a week, my um, workouts aren't as great as they used to be, but it's still pretty consistent. The six days a week doing something and then I work in a rest day. Um, then my mental peak hours are just after that. So shower up after a run, spend time with the, the kids as they're getting rolling. And then I know my best mental hours are you know roughly eight-ish till a little bit after one. And then I can do plenty of busy work, et cetera, through the end of the day. But if I'm going to really focus in on on writing, on work-oriented stuff, that, those are my windows that, to be uh, most highly productive. And then I try to um, really refocus my energy back into my family in the in the evening. Right, I try to shut down work-related stuff, let my just be present with my wife and kids. And I'm usually trying to get to bed somewhere. Uh, 11 ish, uh, East coast time. So that's kind of my routine. I know if I'm, I'm good six and a half, seven hours of sleep, um, seven beyond seven. And I start to feel lazy. If I go six hours consistently, I start to run, run a little weary and I try to repeat that seven days a week.
0: It's apparent you've put a a lot of thought behind this, even if it's just through the amount of time that you've been doing this. So I'm wondering over that period of time, are there things that you've eliminated or, or just didn't find the benefit in that you've eliminated from your routine?
1: Yeah, I, I don't, um, I've probably had stages where I got, you know, trying to figure out social media more. I don't do a lot of time there. Um, it just doesn't get my brain into a good, good space. I, um, so I try to avoid that, you know, there's some stuff you have to do to run a business and some stuff just to keep it uh, updated. But I, I try not to get sucked into the, the sphere and that in that world. Um, as I've gotten older, I've been trying, I've tried to be very disciplined about, um, my eating habits, what, what I'm eating and when I'm eating it. Um, and so, you know, when I was a younger person in the SEAL teams, I could just kind of eat whatever, whenever I wanted. And you knew you were going to maintain fitness and, and, uh, appropriate weight and all that stuff. And so now I'm much more disciplined about the type of food that goes in, um, you know, how you're feeding the machine. And, uh, also try to drink a heck of a lot less than I did as a, as a younger guy, <laughs> you know, growing up in a military culture, that's just sort of part, part of living. Um, but I really find that as you get older, especially, um, you know, you, you, my peak performance mentally is, you know, eight to one, and then it happened with a hangover. So really try to look through it. That lens, you know, one extra drink that equals a headache from eight to 10. And you just lost almost half of your performance for the next day.
0: Yeah. It's one of the the brutal effects of getting old. You mentioned a minute ago about just kind of getting that brain into good space. What are some of those activities that help you get that brain into a good space?
1: Yeah. For me, there's nothing better than, um, than physical output, right. Um, which is why I found putting that, you know, that, that good run, even if it's just a, oh, you know, on, a, on an off day, a nice walk to get your heart rate up and get some fresh air. Uh, but I, 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 really do prefer some sort of, uh, exertion type workout. Although at 47, I have to be more disciplined about what those look like. Um, I find nothing better, get, get your heart rate up, really get some, some, uh, endorphins flowing push yourself physically to the point where I always, I always know I'm having a good workout if I'm not thinking about any, anything else, right. Cause you put yourself in a little bit of physical discomfort. So you're just thinking about the workout, um, that plus endorphin plus, you know, elevated heart rate and oxygen throughput. And I'm really in a, in a great mental place for the next couple hours early morning.
0: Yeah. When you get yourself with that equation, you're certainly going to be operating at a higher level. You mentioned just some of the physical discomforts. And I know with your past being a former wrestler, and then of course being a Navy SEAL, you're also really familiar with teamwork. So I'm just curious how important was the exposure to being part of a team at a really early age for you?
1: Yeah. I mean, I I was the youngest of four, um, have a sister and two brothers, all, all the boys wrestled, um, All of us ended up being wrestling at the collegiate level so um you know had had exposure to really high end of the sport not that i was that great great myself but did it for a long time and really appreciated it And, and it was all i ever knew right i was the youngest of the family and so from before i can remember i was rolling around on a wrestling mat and um so you just sort of you're indoctrinated into the team mentality wrestling's an interesting sport because it's team and individual at the same time, like you're only going to be as good as for, you know, 99% of wrestlers, you're only going to be as good as the room you train in. That's to say, if you have really good workout partners, then you can become as good as they are, or or close, right? Um, So there's a team oriented aspect to it, you're expected to walk into the wrestling room every day, train really hard to make yourself better, but also to make your team mates better. If you're ever uh, dogging in practice, you're hurting your teammates as much as yourself. And then obviously in competition, it's it's all about the individual. Um, and so just growing up in that environment, I, I really never um, had the time to sit back and reflect until I was older on how important that indoctrination into being a supportive teammate was to, to me, to my brothers, and, and how it shaped my mentality and my sort of physical focus that helped me uh, roll into the SEAL teams. And and not surprisingly, wrestling is one of the sports that does really well in uh, SEAL training. And I think it's really for two reasons. One, you understand uh, physical pain. I mean, wrestling is a pretty miserable sport. You know, it's dead of winter. You're always hungry, cutting weight, and you've got to go out and, you know, you're injured half the time and you're, and it's a, it's a pretty intense physical interaction um, coupled with, so, and that's very similar to going through buds in the SEAL teams. it's just kind of, nine months of misery. Right. And uh, coupled with understanding what it means to push teammates to work really hard. So you come into that. I I know how to maintain my individual focus, but I also know what, when I perform well on behalf of my teammates, we all perform well as as a team.
0: For someone who's never been exposed to the seals, how different is it being on a a high-end wrestling team in comparison to what it's like to be in with the brotherhood of the seals?
1: That's a great question. Um, so the most high end um and to put this in context i mean i was i was uh decent i was a decent wrestler i was not um fantastic world class by by any means but i was able to wrestle on um a division one uh college program but really the best program i was ever associated with i did a postgraduate year between high school and college um as a growth year at uh, a place called Blair Academy, which is a, a wrestling program up in uh, New Jersey. And the, for 40 plus years, Blair Academy has had the number one wrestling program uh, in, in the United States uh, at that level. And so that was the best group of uh, wrestlers, best coach, uh, best team oriented environment I ever uh, was ever around. And, there were, were similarities like the, the intensity between that program, um, and the way that team, the teams, our teammates interacted with each other was similar to what it was like being on, uh, in a seal platoon where everyone's hyper-focused, um, understood that the stakes were high. I mean, relatively speaking, it felt really high when you're a young wrestler trying to, you know, compete for a national title. Um, and you felt like every day when you walked in the wrestling room, if you didn't bring your A game, which is you're not going to do that every day. That you were a going to get your you know teeth knocked in because um, somebody else was going to bring their A game, uh, but B that you were letting that down not just the team but the legacy of that team. That was such a, a you know for decades long that, that what that program at Blair Academy means to so the wrestling community is pretty significant. So you felt like you were part of something. Uh, much bigger than yourself. That's the only pro wrestling program, actually, that I'd ever felt like that, that I was part of. Um, when you put on your, your Blair wrestling warmups, you were representing a legacy, right? And that uh, I, I mentored a young uh, sailor who just made it through SEAL Buds, basic selection for the Seal, SEAL teams. And I sent him a note and said, hey, when you get your trident, which doesn't happen immediately after you finish uh, the program, so you get your warfare insignia that that all seals wear on their on their chest uh, for their uniform. Remember, that's not your trident. That that's part of a, a decades-long community of practice, and you are being welcomed into that tribe, and you now represent uh, what that organization shows the world. Like you, you live into that ethos and make it better, and know that every time you do something that weakens it. You not only weaken your own reputation, but you weaken what it stands for. Um, so, I think those those aspects are uh, there. Are a lot of similarities there? If, you're, if you've been fortunate enough to be part of a high performance team, high performance culture, um, it's pretty unique to, to step back and recognize that this is uh, this is. Uh, I am part of a legacy. I'm standing on shoulders that have been around for decades, and it's my job to protect uh, and and further that
0: reputation. Yeah, Chris, you're making my hair stand up just thinking about some of the teams I've been fortunate enough to be a part of, and it's that environment. It's almost that that uneasy feeling where you know every day you just have to absolutely bring it. Uh, I'm I'm wondering, what about those environments? What about those teams and groups do you think creates that? Um, I think it's I think it has to do with
1: the legacy of the culture um and by culture, I mean uh, sort of the accepted norms of, of behavior, right? Um, there's always that sort of mysterious cult- question of what is culture anyway? And that's how I've always looked at it. It's like, w- w- what are the uh, unspoken rules? What are the things that, that, and what are the things that people will just naturally enforce in the hallways? Those sort of trickle up to become, to become your, your culture. Right. And so the, so you tend to attract people that have a sense of I want to be part of a culture like that. Um, at my first SEAL Team, SEAL Team Two, there was a sign over the door on their way on your way out of the command that had been there from the earliest days, and it said simply, um, "Did you earn your trident today? So did you earn your warfare insignia?" Um, and it you know some days you'd walk out and after Quiet Tuesday and be think no I didn't I didn't do anything that really earned what this, this warfare symbol represents. Um, so tomorrow I'm gonna, I'm gonna work harder. So that, that was sort of a cornerstone of our culture. Prove your worth to your teammates every single day. And so I think that having that sort of focused and disciplined culture, when that draws in the right types of people, then the real uh, cornerstone to, to, to success is, and I told people this all, all the time about the SEAL teams, like you feel every day getting out of bed just like I described wrestling at, at, at Blair Academy. I better show up to work pushing hard. I'm going to try to win our workout in the morning. I'm going to be the best at the range when we go out there to shoot, et cetera, et cetera. I'm, I'm going to be five minutes early for every evolution because I know if I don't, someone else will. And they're going to look at me and and think, Hey, do you really want to be on this team? And when you have that level of, of positive intensity from everyone, you know, you become, far more than the sum of your parts, which is the ultimate magic to, to a great team.
0: I'm absolutely loving these insights. And I'm wondering if there's a, a method or type of training, even a system that from your time, the seals that you think would be invaluable for anyone in any walk of life, that if you could incorporate this into everyone, you think there'd be exponential benefits.
1: Um, from a, from a teaming level you know, I'd start with the obvious one that was, was important for the SEAL teams, but it's not always, it's not universal universally transferable. Um, When I got to SEAL team two in the late nineties, you know, you think, Oh, I'm done with, I'm done with buds and sort of the the crummy physical stuff is behind, behind me. And then I got to SEAL team two and it was just this, you know, this was peacetime, but it was the most intense group of, of, you know, operators, and it just made such a such an amazing impression to me the way that they that organization started its mornings five days a week, Monday through Friday, in peacetime in garrison. So back in your home command, with these incredibly intense workouts, five days a week, 365. And so, you know, every Tuesday, at for example, every Tuesday at seal team two was a two and a half mile ocean swim with a five mile run back to the command, rain, snow or shine. I mean, I literally remember going out in snow uh you know after being at the command for four months to swim two and a half miles in the ocean uh while it's snowing out you're you know hypothermic and then you get out and you run five miles back the command and i remember as a young guy thinking i i, I can't do this for the next 10 years 15 years like this is this is insane right but that that level of obviously that's not transferable but for or- organizations that find ways to to uh, to pull people together into a point of uh sort of common suffering um it, with a very positive outcome is a great approach so at, at crystal group our, our my current group that i work with um we pre COVID strangeness right but uh, in years prior had very consistently three or four times a year taken groups of anywhere from a dozen to over 20 folks from our group and done things outside. I, I led a climbing trip every year with about a dozen folks. Um, we would take folks to, uh, you know, Yosemite falls and go for these, you know, overnight big hikes through the mountains and nothing to do with our business, all about creating sort of a common frame of working together as a team and knowing that's going to make us far better in, in our consulting practice. So finding points like that uh, I think is, is transferable. Maybe it's physical, maybe it's, there's lots of ways you can approach that, but, but what am I doing to drive this uh, organization into a, a team oriented mentality when they tar- start to see each other and dependent on
0: each other in a different way? You talk about things that are being able to be transferred on. And I'm wondering with 15 years as a seal, did you walk away with something that you just think can't be transferred? It can only be cultivated in that environment you were in.
1: Uh, yes. (laughs) Um, but, but, and so, so I, and I tell this to my friends that are still in the SEAL teams or, or younger folks that are joining the SEAL teams. Um, I've been around some pretty tribal organizations, um, you know, between intense athletics, uh, even our organization now pretty, you know, very focused, uh, boutique 80 person ish consulting firm, um, but I've never seen anything as tribal as the SEAL teams. And that, by that, I mean the, the bonds that form between people uh, that you're either in the tribe or out of the tribe that run much deeper than your personality, than your own personal likes or dislikes, sometimes more than connection with outside family, et cetera, et cetera. That, that was always the nature of that organization and then couple it with, you know, years now of, of constant combat rotations And that's very, very hard and you probably wouldn't want to transfer it over into uh, other organizations. And frankly, it's one of the reasons that people, uh, many people find transitioning out of those organizations so challenging because you spend that many years in that intense of a, you know, physical, mental, emotional tribe that just doesn't exist other places and the breaking away and sort of redefining yourself with another team, another organization, another way of living uh, can be quite a challenge.
0: How did confidence factor in for all this for you? I'm even wondering about the onset of buds and just thinking about going through that. And then once completing that, like you said, every single day, it's a battle. So I'm just wondering the the context of confidence throughout all of that.
1: Um, Are you saying
0: confidence or competence? Sorry, confidence. Yeah, I'm a, a podcast host and I can't properly articulate. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, it's important, right? And, and it changes over your your career in a place like that. And I, there's probably some similarities to, um, you know, the folks I know in professional sports, um, especially the more physically dangerous ones like football, etc. So folks I know that have played in the NFL, folks that are involved in, in high-end um, sort of extreme sports. I do a lot of rock climbing. So that sport, skydiving, etc. Sports that have a um, low likelihood but but high negative consequence uh, op- options, and every time you go out and do it, um, there's there's similarities across the spectrum. I think there for how your confidence adjusts over your career, and so there's a there's a um, a real beauty in the na- naivety you have coming into a thing like uh, the SEAL teams, right? So your confidence going into buds, the basic selection process is physical and mental. Like you're thinking I am, I won't quit, right? I don't know what this entails. I really don't know anything about the seal teams. I know I want to be associated with this brand. Everything I see about the people that are in this community represent the type of person I want to become. And so the only thing I was confident in going, going through buds was um, I'm just, I'm not going to quit. You know, maybe if my bone ends up sticking through the side of my leg or um, you just something something horrible happens and I'm rolled out of training. Okay, but there's no way I'm going to quit. And that's not special or unique to me. I mean, that's the mentality that training like that is designed to find. They're not looking for just the super triathlete um, or just the 400 pound bench press person. They're looking for that gritty mentality that says "I, I can beat this person for li- literally in, in SEAL training for five days straight during Hell Week, and they're just not gonna quit, right? They're gonna, they're gonna put themselves into physical danger before they, they ring the bell, which is what you do when you, you quit in SEAL selection. And as g- folks that become instructors in that world, whether it's SEAL training or ranger school or other high selection uh, special operations units, they start, they can see that relatively quickly. Um, Not always, but they get pretty good at it. Like this is a person that looks the part, you know, division one athlete, fast runner, et cetera. But I think that I don't think they've made that commitment. They're still, they're here for perhaps the wrong reasons. They're still not sure that they won't quit no matter what. uh, And I'm going to bear down on them until I find that soft spot. You know, this young kid over here who, you know, has never been in the ocean before he started seal selection. I can just tell you, he is never going to quit. And so we'll, we want to push him really hard to make sure we're right. And then we'll train him up to be the type of operator we need, but they're looking first and foremost for that, that deep sense of uh, focused grit.
0: I'm wondering if you've developed a sense of pattern recognition within this. And if so, when you go into some of these elite business organizations, do you see similar traits?
1: I think you, it, it, pattern recognition is super important. Right. And, um, Especially in high-end uh, athletics, high-end military units, um, where you have the the luxury of training a lot before you go into a situation, and so what pattern recognition does for you essentially gives you white space, right? Um, and I talk about all the time with our with our corporate clients, right? You you want to put yourself under consistent intense stress and pressure um, because it makes things easier for you when that actually happens. Right. And so like I remember the first time uh, I jumped out of a uh, an airplane at, you know, 25,000 feet as you go through free fall training. And I don't I don't care how cool and tough and slick you are. The first time you're, you know, you're on night vision goggles and o- oxygen, you're 25,000 feet off the ground. You're going to be in two minutes of free fall in the pitch dark. Uh, you, that's a pretty intense situation, right? <laughs> and so... <laughs> So I remember rolling out and thinking like, okay, keep, keep your calm. Don't kill yourself. Don't kill anybody around you. And you're just hyper-focused, staring at your altimeter, making sure you don't mess up. And then over the radio, uh, I was jumping with some very experienced guys there as well over the radio, all going through the same thing. You're all in this big free fall two minute drop together. Uh, One of the more experienced, very experienced folks comes across and says, okay, everybody check your bearing. We should be at this, this bearing. Your altitude should be here right now. He was talking to all of us, like I'm talking to you right now. Like my heart rate was like 160. His was probably 55. Um, and so he had nothing but white space, right? He, everything that was freaking me out. Cause these were all new patterns were, you know, he had 7,000 jumps under his belt. So he, he could put all that into a little box and just focus on what he needed to focus on. And part of that was I'm going to talk calmly to my teammates and make sure we all get through this, uh, together. And so that's the whole, if you boil it down, that's the core reason that you train hard that you practice hard that, and and that's true on a wrestling mat. That's true in, in a shoot house in the SEAL teams. And it's true in the corporate space. Um, you know, I, I, I tell people in, in like the consulting world all the time, um, Hey, it's, it's, it's just as hard to explain how you can help a six-person startup as it is a 6,000-person mid cap company, as it is a, you know, 300,000 Fortune 10 company. Um, you have to get a lot of reps in so that when you have those big opportunities, you know exactly what you're, you're talking about. Don't think it's, you know, you're not going to suddenly hit a home run if you don't go to batting practice every day, right? And so it's it's a critical skill but it's one that only comes to you through hard work. You know, that that person I'm describing didn't just easily get 7,000 free fall jumps under their belt, right? They worked really hard at that for years and became a master of their skill.
0: Are there any self-trained skills where you don't have to actually be jumping out of the, the 25,000 foot drop there just to be able to train, remaining calm during these chaotic type scenarios? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a believer in... in
1: Visualization, breathing practices, those sorts of things. Learn how to calm yourself, control your nerves, etc. Um, and there's there's plenty of, uh, sort of science behind how that works. I'm also a big believer in. It's one of the reasons I love personally love rock climbing, and I love taking people that don't climb on rock climbing trips because I mean I'm not a great climber relative to the climbing world. I'm you know. Very average, right? But there's all of us. Ninety-nine percent of humans um, are innately anxious about a sport like that, right? Because you're not supposed to go straight up something; you're supposed to go around it, right? And so you get ten feet off the ground, and you're and you're working to place some gear, or you, your heart rate's going to go up. You're going to get nervous. You're going to get uh, you're going to start to lose your focus. Um, so whether it's climbing or other quicker hit type activities where people and you can do this through through yoga um, which is super low impact but very physically challenging where if you don't control your focus and your breathing etc you're not going to be able to get through the routine like you like to you can feel those differences in your body and often it comes down to not that your hamstrings are, are are loose enough it's that you're not focusing on the the task at hand and so those skills you learn whether it's Meditation, yoga, rock climbing, skydiving—whatever it is you choose, things, building things into your life that demand presence in the moment to be able to execute effectively. Those skills are hyper transferable over the uh, the mental focus, the breathing skills, etc. That I, I I focus on when I'm climbing are the same exact ones that I focus on before I walk out onto a stage to deliver a keynote to a thousand people or before I walk into an executive office to, to, to talk about our consulting firm, firm, where you, if you, you can easily feel yourself drifting away from that moment, recenter yourself, recenter, your thinking, your breathing, et cetera, and be present in the moment. It's very transferable.
0: You mentioned your big individualization when you're trying to calm yourself down, are you basically visualizing yourself almost like you're in, at an elevated state looking down upon yourself?
1: Um, no. When I when I think of visualization, um, I'm a I'm a believer in visualizing the event, uh, like quite literally walking yourself through it. So um, use that skydiving example. So you're gonna you're gonna jump out of a an airplane at 25,000 feet um, sit calmly and think about it you know, dozens of times. Here's exactly how I'm going to step off. I'm going to then go into this body position. I'm going to look at my altimeter, then I'm going to do this, et cetera, et cetera, and walk yourself through it in real time, that whole two minute cycle. And, you know, there's plenty of science to prove when you're, when you get into the moment, your brain feels like it's been there, um, not 68 times if that's how, how many times you thought it through but also not zero. So you're getting a performance spike. Uh, your body thinks it's done that a dozen times uh, instead of the first time ever. And so you buy yourself, there is some pattern recognition like we were talking about earlier there and you buy yourself a little bit of space to think. Um, I th- but I, you can do the same exact thing if you're walking out to deliver a, a talk to a thousand people. Uh, visualize, okay, I'm gonna come up the stairs, I'm gonna turn, I'm gonna, these are the first 10 words out of my mouth. And if you can get yourself into that position with the, with the audience, everything else tends to, for most speakers comes naturally on the backside, right. Or or for a big presentation, et cetera. So literally putting yourself in the moment and walking through it multiple times. So your body and mind think I've been here before.
0: Yeah, I'm a, I'm a huge believer in that. I, I used to do it with a bunch while playing sports and then even even today I went for a long swim and I, I literally was walking through this conversation with you. So I think there's unbelievable benefits to that. You you were mentioned some of the skills that are really easy to transfer over. What skill of yours do you just think's hardest to, to teach new people in your organiza- organization?
1: I you know, this is this is one thing that the um the SEAL teams is also sort of wrestled with in its selection model Um, because like any high-end organizations that have the the luxury of hiring very talented people or uh, an organization like SEAL Teams that naturally draws in a uniquely talented type of person, um, roughly, they're going to be smart enough. They went to the right school. They can run fast enough, et cetera, fill in the blank, whatever the standards are. Like they wouldn't show up and knock on the door if they didn't have, you know, most of those and 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 a good majority and probably better than the the person next to them right so um, what's really hard to test for and teach is without and I say this based on like different life experiences without the luxury sort of in air quotes of being able to just physically crush someone for six seven eight months straight where you, if I can put you through sleep deprivation and, and cold water and you're physically exhausted and hurt and then push you harder, I will find out whether you're a gr- you're a gritty person or not, whether you have the discipline, personal discipline to go beyond your own known limits, um, and that's that's just hard to it's hard to interview for, it's hard to test for. It, you just have to you wait for those moments where the pressure comes up and then you, then you highlight who you see quickly, who has that and who doesn't. What I found on the outside, uh, now outside of the military in our consulting firm, um, we've been very fortunate over the years to build a, a culture of discipline. It's mostly not military folks. Right. Um, you know, just a few of us that started the firm had that background. It's mostly just super talented, super disciplined, uh, Consultants, right? And we built this really interesting business and levels below where I sit in the organization, over n- now nearly 10 years into it, very much like I saw in the SEAL teams or a great athletic program, those that hold the code of the tribe, one of which is when it's time to work hard, you work hard, are the younger members of the firm or the those that were younger that now have been with us for six, seven, eight years who have taken on that as their re- responsibility to to make sure that we live into that that ethos right so i think things like that are only teachable through the having them embedded into the into the tribe and then those that want to be associated with that brand of course they're going to look to their senior leadership to say what what are they saying what sort of uh, leadership model do they embody but they really are going to look to their Peers and those a few levels above them to say, what sort of tribal norms are we enforcing amongst ourselves when the leadership isn't around, so to speak? And that's when everybody has to step up and be part of it. And so, if you, if you can get there as a as a as a culture, it's it's a really powerful tool, um, but also one that's very hard to to teach individually.
0: Yeah, I can attest to the job that you guys do there at the McChrystal Group. So I actually came by. Uh, Last July, I was sitting down with Jeff Eggers, and the first person who opens the door for me is General McChrystal, and he, he goes to spend the next 15 minutes with me grabbing a cup of coffee, and it was the day that you guys were onboarding all of your new employees, and I'm sure he had 5 million other things to do, but it was just such a great example of him being present and showing what true leadership is and you could see the trickle down effect with with everyone else in there and, and so i'd even love to just dive into a bit more of what you guys do and, and i know you discuss this in your book and, and your book is an absolute must read uh one mission it's funny i can always tell how much i enjoy a book by how much i highlight and i was going through my kindle notes and it was just pages and pages of highlights so huge testament to, to you but uh anyone who's leading a team, I I really recommend that they pick this book up, but could you just lay a little groundwork and just say who General Stanley McChrystal is? And then we'll dive into some of the examples and and things that you guys do there.
1: Yeah, so I had the unique experience um, to, I was in the SEAL teams from 97 till 2012. And then I selected into um, the counterterrorism unit Uh, Broadly speaking, this this, uh, inter-military operational unit, Joint Special Operations Command that Stan McChrystal oversaw from 2003 to 2008. I went through selection for our piece of that, the Navy's piece of that, uh, late 2003, 2004. And so rolled in right as McChrystal was was taking over that that command. Um, And then his fifth year, Commanding that 2008, he was forward deployed for five years straight. I spent a year as his aide de camp, sort of like a chief of staff type function. So, and now obviously in, in, in partners with him at, at the McChrystal group, which he founded when he retired in 2010. And so having been uniquely positioned to be many, many rungs below his leadership at a tactical level, um, sort of experiences firsthand, firsthand the changes that he made inside of our, our enterprise, spending a year on the senior staff as his aide, just watching how he and the senior leaders were running this global enterprise in a totally different way than had ever been done before. And then now over the last 10 years being business partners, um, what Stan is most known for, and the military history books already have and will continue to capture about his leadership was that at, at the right and critical time in our fight against global terrorism, at that point it was Al-Qaeda, Taliban, now we have ISIS and these other, these other permutations of global terrorists. What had changed in the years running up to September 11th was... Uh, the fact that the information age so our, our ability to connect digitally with anybody around the world at light speed had been adopted, that technology had been adopted by uh, terrorists, right? And so they were able to move from slow moving and very concentrated pockets because you had to lay, you had to get people together and have secret meetings and you had to write an encrypted letter and move it around the world through couriers. And they realized, wow, we can just connect digitally all around the world much faster. We can grow quicker, et cetera. And they became a digitally enabled startup, so to speak, right? They had, they had a really good marketing campaign. Their product was extremism and violence, and that attracts a certain type of, of, of buyer, so to speak. And their membership was really interested in being part of that tribe. And they could communicate with anyone in the world at light speed, right? And so by 2003, when McChrystal took over the the part of the military that was specifically tasked with fighting terrorism around the world, going after these terrorists, he realized quickly, I've taken over an organization that he was once part of as a younger officer that is designed to, to, to do these operations in very specific silos. We control information at the top and it cascades down through these verticals to the appropriate team on the ground, and then we give them their intelligence, their resources and everything they'll need, they will go out and execute flawlessly one mission, a single operation, and then they will they will come back to the mothership, so to speak. And for generations, we had been in that very linear mindset. We make decisions at the top, we give authorities to pe- troops at the ground, they go do one thing and then they come home. Uh, and he recognized soon into his uh, his five years running this entire global command, the adversary we're fighting doesn't think like that anymore. Formerly terrorists were isolated in time and space because they couldn't connect fast enough. So if you found them and you you went out and got them, you were to slow the whole thing down. Now, they were communicating through just internet technology that is at all of our fingertips. And so one operation, coming back into the mothership with new information, couldn't, you couldn't possibly move that way of thinking, that very siloed top-down structure fast enough to keep up with this global network. And at the core of it, that's what the history books will write about Stan McChrystal. He was the first leader to recognize, we've built a beautiful system that was very well designed for the 20th century, and we're trying to make it applicable to an information age battle space. And it, no matter how good you are at the job, you can't move fast enough to keep up with this new type of adversary even though they're much less capable that they never win in the moment they don't have the same training or funding etc cetera, etc cetera. we have all the comparative advantages but the one thing they can do is move as a network and networks are not easily defeated unless you start to ad- adapt to some of their behaviors and so he layered in on top of this big traditional methodology a, a network system as well and so you could operate both as a traditional silo, very bureaucratic player, which in some ways was totally fine, like how you ran your supply chain or how you went through procurement processes, et cetera. And in other ways you could operate as an absolutely decentralized network, much like the Al Qaeda threat. And in in those examples, that small team could go out to that, that operation on the ground. And as soon as they found new information, they could independently say, ah, now I'm going to go from this objective to that objective on the other side of Baghdad without calling in for a bunch of permission, without flying home and showing them what I found. And so we were able to operate with, with fluidity in one way and then centralized controls in another. And that was the magic of what Stan brought to the military, to the counterterrorism space, and it's the foundation for the work we've been doing in the industry for a decade now.
0: Yeah, what what I love most about the Book One Mission is just how applicable and how easy you make this to understand in a business context and what we all can do in our organizations, whether it be a a small team in a startup or a multi-thousand-person organization. Uh, And and the the number of stories you have, even just some of the, the displays you have in the book, I just make it so clear and so concise. So I really did appreciate that. What about specifically? What are you guys doing at the McChrystal Group right now? I'm wondering when you go into an organization, what does that look like the first few days? Yeah, the the
1: the most interesting uh, thing for the last ten years has been thinking through, like for for me personally, how do you how do you do this? Like, how do you make how much of this was just in the DNA of the people and the and and the situation we found ourselves in, et cetera, et cetera. So this sort of intangibles. Um, and how much of this is transferable? And it's been really um, a, a great surprise if I go back to ten years ago when we really started this to recognize how much of it is transferable. And it's it's transferable for a few reasons. One, because we're all we're all now facing the same problem, right? Um, especially in the last three months during this global pandemic and all the social unrest uh, going on right now in the U.S. and now spreading around the world, uh, we all have fast moving, very complex problems that we're trying to figure out, right? That was certainly true for us on the battlefield. Um, Al Qaeda wasn't a better terrorist organization. It was a terrorist organization that was interconnected. It could pass information faster than anyone had uh, previously. So organizations around the world, even prior to the last few months, have been wrestling with that. We were built to be perfect in 1997, but now it's Year twenty twenty, and we just can't keep up, right? So, that's part of the transferability. Now, what we've done to refine how we bring that into organizations has been really interesting. The the McChrystal Group is essentially broken into three components, um, and we've we've learned this over the years. We have an analytics team, uh, we have a an implementation team, and we have an academy. And so, McChrystal Analytics is has a shadow of how we came to view networks. We had to understand the network threats we were were going after before we started taking action. Otherwise you could just make the problem worse, right? So that sort of thinking we believe holds true in how organizations should understand themselves. You have an org chart on the wall, you have business unit heads, et cetera, et cetera. And that's your very knowable sort of top-down vertical structure. But then there are also networks inside your building that make things happen that slow things down there are pockets of excellence that you don't you don't know exist there are influencers that you know sit on the third floor they're a mid-level person you never heard of but they're the most important person to get this type of stuff done so our analytics team goes in and and will spend the first part of most most of our gate engagements uh, in in a four to six week sprint essentially where they are using network mapping tools and uh a survey analysis where they look at high performance teaming culture, levels of trust, levels of uh, alignment on strategy, those sorts of things that tend to exist uh, sort of a, in a natural state in a high performance small team. Levels of trust on a basketball court are pretty high, right? Otherwise, you're not going to be a very successful team. We look at those at scale. What are the what are the levels of trust inside this 20,000 person organization, and where do those where do those teaming norms map over to? the level of uh, network connectivity. So these two teams are disconnected and they also have low levels of, of trust for each other. Now you have a, a real problem, right? So we spend our first six or eight weeks there. And then based on those findings, we'll go back to leaders in, 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 the, in, in a, the organization and say, okay, here's where we could apply some uh, some implementation thinking around communication structures, decision-making authorities, pushing them further to the edge so that we can create this network model. And here's where our McChrystal Academy folks can come in and help you uh, think through the behavior change that's necessary to support a, a faster moving, more transparent uh, and honest trust-based model, right? So we find in, in large organizations, you can blend those three together seamlessly. And in some smaller organizations, we'll just we'll take one piece of that puzzle Uh, and and, and do some focus work and maybe come back later and do another something from one of the other verticals.
0: Yeah, I I, I love just the amount of insights and research you guys have, especially in the book. So I want to make sure people are able to to pick that up so we don't dive too deep into that. But but I'm wondering about, and this kind of ties back to pattern recognition a bit, what do you think General McChrystal saw in you and why did he select you for that position?
1: Yeah, it's a Probably because I was willing to do the job. Um, <laughs> the, I don't, I, I don't think it was, uh, anything too special. Um, I mean, I, I, I say, cause I'm just, I was, you know, amongst a, a pool of incredibly talented people and like most people in an organization like that, you're, you're always pretty sure you're in the bottom quartile, um, which is the mark of a, of an intense and competitive space. Um, that I think is a good thing. Um, that said we've talked about it over the years and um i i think one thing that he appreciated at least was my i, I did have a real intellectual curiosity about um about how he was he and his leaders were making things ma- making the organization so effective right so when i i had to sit down an interview with him and some of his current staff for the position and he asked um why would you want to do a job like this? And I, you know, and the honest answer was like most people from units like I came from. Hey, sir, I'd, I'd never really set out to be an aide, right? I'd rather stay in the operational units. Um, that said, um, I know you need people like this on your staff, or you wouldn't be asking. So if I if that's what's helpful to the organization, count me in. Uh, I'll I'll give it my best. And but personally, if I were to do it, I would be super interested in just studying this from behind the curtains for a year to really understand. I've been, I've been the beneficiary of how you've decentralized so many authorities. I've been at the front edge of the fight and been able to move faster as a result of what you've done, but it's really hard to understand that from out there. So to come inside the tent for a year and study it, even just sitting on the back bench and kind of observing all this, I think would be, would be super interesting. Now, I wasn't sure at the time whether there was a really a thing behind the curtain aside from just a bunch of really talented senior leaders. And so he just sort of, I remember in the interview, just said, oh, okay, that makes sense. And I didn't really know whether he thought I was ridiculous or not. But I realized in hindsight, of course there was a thing. Like he had redesigned the way the organization functioned and made decisions, et cetera. And so he said in in his reflection, like, I saw, I saw in your part a genuine interest. So I was almost inviting you in to, to do your, your, your study of how it was all working. And the knock-on was you were going to, you were going to do the aid stuff, uh, as well.
0: In my prep work for this, it said that interview was only 30 minutes. Is that true? Uh,
1: yeah, probably. uh, he's a pretty busy guy. (laughs) So yeah, 30 minutes would have been about right.
0: So then I, I'm curious about the assessment process. What does that look like right now for the McChrystal group?
1: Uh, as when we're hiring folks, this obviously is a strange uh, year for everyone. But in normal times, um, over the last I don't know five six years, we've started a a, a great intern program. Um, some of our best best current employees have come through that as uh, folks at, coming out of school. We'd always we we pivoted it to rising seniors, we have, you know, X number of schools that we consistently recruit from. And uh, we've been really lucky to get, we'll open up, uh, you know, eight to 10 intern spots a year, we'll get, you know, several hundred applications, we'll boil them down to 100 phone interviews, and we'll do two super days of 25, 20-ish each. And then we boil it down to our final set of 10 interns, and then we'll usually make six officers, offers on the backside of that. So it's a relative to our size. Um, we take that really seriously. And we, we um, that's probably our most mature and successful assessment uh, window. I personally think having interviewed in, in, in the military, having interviewed in the corporate space, interviews are just a really hard thing, right? Anybody can be with the right background and pedigree can be the perfect person for an hour. Um, they're, they're important. To to do obviously, um, but I'm a huge believer that a uh, an internship like that, where you get to see people through multiple lenses, you get they interact with multiple different teammates. That's the best way you're going to get an assessment of, of someone. So we certainly overinvest in in that sort of model.
0: You mentioned how hard the interview can be. This was about five years ago, but you have one of my all time favorite interview questions. So I would love to just get your your updated take on this if you still use this. And so you start by saying, we're a small community and you and I haven't worked together, but I know a lot of your peers and we're going to follow up with people that you like that like you and don't like you after this. What will the people that don't hold you in the highest regard? What will they say about you? Do you still use that and if so i would love for you just to break down what you usually get out of asking a question like that
1: yeah it's interesting um i use that that was a great question in when you were selecting into different units in the military because it was so small everybody knows each other uh, or you're one step away from from anyone so if you sit down to to interview you're going to sound brilliant you're going to do great on your all your testing and then somebody says, hey, Sean, you know, we've never worked together, but I know 10 people that have worked with you. Two of them are going to have something negative to say um, because none of us are perfect. What, what are they going to say? And it's just, a it was always a great way for them to self-reflect. The worst answer was um, they're going to say I worked too hard or whatever, you know, some silly can thing. But the best answers were like, um, yeah, I i had a bad uh month on deployment last time and here's why, or, you know, some real raw raw and honest, honest moment. I found that in my current world, using that in sort of mentor discussions and relationships is, is a much more effective tool. I think sometimes that's a bit of a, it's hard to get past a canned, not canned, but, you know, sort of a pivot towards a rehearsed answer. If you use that for, for younger Someone you know, a junior in college, is interviewing for an internship or something like that. Um, that's sort of a, a meta-level question, I think. That's that can be hard at that age. It would have been for me for sure. But um, we do a lot of we take mentoring very seriously in our in our firm, and so I love going down that road with um, folks in our in our organization. And I, I like to ask them of that about me. Like, here's what I think people would say about me right now, as on on the negative side. Um, so I think it's a great it's a great tool for that that toolkit. Um, I actually now, um, love the question because if you, you know, like I said, we we were able to recruit a, a pretty high level performer from, from great schools and they've got these amazing backgrounds, et cetera. And, 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 you know, like any other, um, high-end consulting firm, the type of folks they would, they would want to draw in. And, There's, I don't, I don't use it all the time, but I think there's a great question where you can start to unpack the way someone thinks if you get, so I might ask you, it's like, okay, Sean, um, describe for me, we, we take teams seriously. We take our organization very seriously. We take our helping our clients that are, tend to be really high performing organizations. Take that very seriously. Describe the best organization or team you've ever been part of. And you might describe your fraternity. You might describe your wrestling team. You might describe uh, your your university. Whatever the case may be, and so I like to go back and forth a little bit there and say, find out kind of why you thought it was so good. Was it the people? Was it the rule book? Was it et cetera, et cetera? And then stopping and saying, okay, now if you could go back and redesign it, what are two or three, three things you would have done differently? And you get this really interesting insight into some people that are the constant, and this is what you really have to be as a consultant. You're, that, that constant level of tinkering and dissatisfaction. how can I make this better um, even though it's already really, really effective? And some people will describe their you know, wrestling at Blair Academy and be like, uh, I don't know, I just think it was perfect. I mean, it was best coach. We won the nationals. I don't I wouldn't change anything, right? Which is great. That means you you're an awesome performer to perform at that level, but you weren't staying up at night and going, if I could change one thing, it would be this. And then you see others that are like, "Oh, here's exactly what I would have changed about, the, you know, the number one prep school wrestling program in the country," which is kind of a bold statement, right? But you could tell they're like, "I've been waiting for somebody to ask me this question. This is the one thing we did wrong all the time, and here's how I would have changed it." And you get this, this real, and I could care less what the answer is. I just want to know if is this is it? Do you think like this?
0: Wow, I absolutely love that that new interview question. I'm I'm glad you brought that one up you've mentioned so far in this interview you just talked there a minute ago just about that that constant tinkering and then also curiosity came out earlier Uh, i'm wondering for you right now at this stage where you are in your life your career what are you tinkering with the most where your curiosity is leading you to
1: uh it's a timely question because i think a lot of us are doing some deep deep reflection right now with everything that's that's going on uh in the world and um you know i've had the unique privilege of spending um years in pretty intense space you know, battlefield consulting etc um while also um having to keep your intellectual rigor up right um we didn't just figure out we beat al qaeda through like helicopters and, and and grit right you had to it was an intellectual game as well. Consulting is an intellectual game. Teaching, I teach courses. That's an intellectual game. And so, right now, I think we're all. I know for me, it's like really diving into at a personal level, family level, etc. What what is what has gone wrong? What has gotten us to this point? Where, how has the social fabric gotten this this week? Um, so that it can be sparked uh, you know, with a few different variables coming together. Um, and what can we do to fix that? What's our responsibility as individual citizens, as fathers and and, and mothers, as family units, as members of a community, a society, et cetera? Where should we be putting our, our energy right now towards solving those sorts of problems? Uh, I don't know what that answer will look like, but I know for me and my wife and family, we are, thinking deeply about like how can we be better parts of this solution which i don't know what the solution will be but i know we have to be constantly looking for ways he- moving forward to be oriented towards something that will shore back up that that social fabric and and all the other problems that have led us to this this brink um which is not a you know it's not a i've a 9 year old and 11 year old we live in the middle of Washington, DC, which we we love. And I want to be, I want my kids to see their parents as part of an active solution toward, you know, reshoring up what this country stands for um, in a very positive direction and set that example for them. Uh, so that's sort of where my my head is oriented right now.
0: Yeah, you, you have a quote in your book that I absolutely love and I would just love to get your take on it. So that quote is, take accountability for your actions, develop and nurture a strong internal locus of control. In the military and in business, the most elite and effective teams I've seen or been part of are filled with individuals who take responsibility for their choices. Life is a series of decisions that you make and actions you take, not a series of things that happen to you. Uh, I'd love just for you to riff on that for a minute right now.
1: Yeah, um, the... Uh you've read my book more recently than I have, but, um, <laughs> but, but
0: <laughs> sorry, I've been, ner- I've been nerding out on it for like the last week no, getting pumped I, for this conversation. I, so my apologies. I
1: appreciate it. Um, I, that, uh, that thinking actually started for me. I have, I'm fortunate to have a a great family and I'm very close to my, my sister and her, and her husband as well. I've got four great kids. Our families are tight, but her husband has been a friend, mentor, role model, et cetera, for, for, for many years, as long as, you know, going back 20 years or more. <clears throat> and he um, came from a, a pretty unique background in it, as much as like, just was a fine family, but like, wasn't, uh, didn't grow up with a silver spoon in his mouth um, or high expectations, wasn't sent to some fancy private school, etc. He was just sort of grinded away on his own. He ended up going to uh, Duke on a duke university on a, an academic ride uva medical school um became an ear nose throat surgeon completely self-starter and i remember talking to him once years ago i was i was in the military but i was relatively young about <clears throat> sort of how how did you not end up go falling into the pitfalls that you know nine out of ten people or more than that in your circumstances your life circumstances would have fallen into and he he's not very self-absorbed or or reflective on these these sorts of things so he doesn't take it to himself too seriously he said I don't know I think I realized at an early age that um, I would I would pay consequences for all my actions and they might be good consequences or bad but they were going to be completely up to me because I didn't have a safety net so I just decided to make as many good choices as I could and it was really re- an important moment of re- reflection for me um, having grown up in a in a slightly different circumstance than my brother-in-law where, you know, as a young kid, we could make missteps and kind of get pulled out of it because, you know, you had that social network fabric that was looking out for you, which is not necessarily a healthy, uh, healthy thing. And that was a very important pivotal moment in in my life. I think fortunately I've been raised by by parents that had instilled that, at least in me, that, that external locus of control, which I think is critical. It's the one thing that I, harp on constantly with my children of you know you took that action that was a consequence therefore who is responsible for that uh whether it's a scraped knee or something happens at school etc and they know there's only one right answer they're responsible for it right you you you're nine years old but you chose to take an action that was a consequence and you will take responsibility for it um and you're going to deal with the consequences right and so I don't think you can give a better gift to a kid than that, that sense personally, like you will make a series of decisions every single day of your life. All of them will have outcomes and you have to be responsible for dealing with those. They may be good. They may be bad. And so I think what, um, what I saw in, in good military units, when I in good, uh, a good practice, like we've tried to build here at McChrystal group is people that have that sense of I happen to the world, the world doesn't happen to me. And again, it's a hard thing to test for or interview for, et cetera. But when you see it, when you see it go bad, it's something I just want to walk away from. <laughs> like, I don't, this isn't recoverable. You know, if you're, if you're 10 years into your professional career and your, your attitude is still, well, it's cause I got a bad boss. Hey, everybody gets a bad boss, right? Um, what are you going to do to fix it? Uh, is, is the question. Um, And and on the other end, when you see it in an extreme where people have that, I will take control of my own world, it's so powerful. Like um, I I remember um, this young woman that worked for us at McChrystal Group years ago, and Stan McChrystal and I had to be in New York for some engagement with a client. She was bringing briefing packets from DC, there was, you know, some massive storm that shut down the railways all the way up the East coast. And she was supposed to leave that morning, et cetera, et cetera. Five minutes before the meeting starts, she walks in the door and um, i coolest cool as cucumber, had the briefing papers, et cetera. And I remember asking her like on a break in the meeting, how, how did you get out of D.C.? And she just looked at me and said, "I figured it out." Didn't offer any details. Didn't I? Don't know. I still this day I don't know what she did, right? But it wasn't on Amtrak, um, and most of the planes were late. And she just figured it out. And she, you know, was like, "This person will. If she stays around, she'll be the president of this consulting firm," because she's 22 years old, and she just took complete accountability for action. And she she answered the mail. And you see it in those moments or you don't, and when you see it, you're, you you just know like this this person has will change the world if they want to.
0: Chris, 200 episodes of this podcast. I, I really don't know if there's been a, a more important and better five minutes ever. Uh, so that, that was incredible. I really appreciate that. Do you have a few more minutes to go on for some things here? Yeah, sure do. Awesome. So you brought up again and again just the mentors that you've had and, and mentorship. I'd love to get your current day perspectives on, on how you view mentorship. I know in the past you you've talked about kind of having that plus minus equals, uh, and, and someone you're you're teaching, someone you're equal to, and then someone you're striving uh, to be better. Is, is that currently how you're viewing mentorship today?
1: Yeah, just for for your, for your listeners, and that's something that a mentor of mine told me in the SEAL teams that that uh, look up look left and right and look down, you know, always have people above you that you're trying to emulate and learn from, always be looking for peers that are doing it better than you are, share that with them and learn from each other and always look down and look for the people that are doing the job you did last year, but, but doing it better. Um, And if if you can't do that, if you can't look down and find somebody more competent, either you did a bad job mentoring them or you have too much of an ego and you should look for something else, um, to do with your life, (laughs) um, so yeah, no, I think that I think that is still a very important lens. Um, probably the one the one area where I've I've evolved in the, the most over the last few years on this is believing it more deeply than ever. One, um, but the proactivity of creating mentor relationships um, is something that I try to really talk with younger folks in our firm about, and I will. Tell people, okay, you've been you've been in the professional space for 18 months, right? You just graduated college a year and a half ago. Uh, who are you mentoring? And they're thinking, I, I'm still figuring out how to like find an apartment in DC. Like, no, no, no. You, you, there's somebody at your university that can learn from you right now. There's an intern in our summer program that can learn from you right now. You are you are aging in dog years as soon as you start in the professional space. 18 months has gone by in a snap for you, but you are way more experienced and worldly and approachable to that senior at your university or to the, you know, the the person that w- was on your old athletic program back at school or this new hire that just walked through the door, seek them out and be their mentor. And maybe, you, you know, in, in 18 months, you'll be much more like near peers and then do it again, go deeper again. Um, so keep looking for those relationships and paying it forward. Right. And, I think if one thing's changed in my, or evolved in my thinking, it's that we all think that we should be doing that much later in life than I think is actually the case. Um, and I, I'll encourage, you know, 22, 23 year olds all the time to say, Hey, you should be mentoring two or three people, uh, all the time from here on out for the rest of your career.
0: Do you have any good stories or examples of someone you've been mentoring that just really helped set them apart that, Something they did, an action they took, where it really left a lasting impression on you. Um, y- yeah, but nothing I would take
1: credit for. Um, I think a good, um, you know, there's the, it's the difference between a, a, a sort of a mentor and a, and a role model, I guess maybe would be the d- way to describe it. Um, you know, I don't, I, I, I don't want to be a role model for people, right? Because I, I think you we're all our own unique and individual creatures. Right. And here, here are the moral boundaries we should all live inside of, um, the level of respect we should have for one another, um, on the planet. Um, but aside from that, the way I've lived my life, the things I've done, like don't try to model yourself after that because we're just too, uh, unique and different in in countless ways. Um, so when you, if I was mentoring Sean, um, I would want to make that clear. Like, look, I'll tell you, I'm an open book. I'll tell you everything about me and my choices and the way that I've navigated things that have gotten me here, but don't learn from that in, in, in a way that you hope to repeat it. Um, learn from it and how it can apply to who you are as a, as a person. And so when I see, and, and I've been fortunate to be around some amazingly talented, uh, folks throughout, throughout my career. Um, some of it, which I've been able to put myself in a mentor position, even if only for a brief, brief window. Um, but I can, I can tell you, f- for example, um, a person that I served with in, 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 the SEAL teams, uh, was a few years younger than me. And so we, we, we served together in a few units. Um, and just based on seniority, I was in charge of this person, but also kind of served as a mentor, as he figured out it how to navigate the SEAL teams. Um, he got out, And I think we learned from each other, probably I think helped adjust the way he thought about being a leader. Um, When he was in the position I was in running a SEAL platoon, he was much better than I was. I can maybe take a little bit of influence credit there. Um, And then he got out years before I did and went on into the banking world. And now is, you know, makes millions of dollars and runs a big piece of a huge global bank. Right. Um, That has nothing to do with me at all. Right. Um, He is, maybe there was a window where, uh, he was learning s- some things in our mentor-mentee relationship that helped shape his thinking. He evolved into a better leader, maybe marginally better than he would have been had we not had that relationship. Uh, and it's, for me, super satisfying to see people that you've been in position with to, to then become your, your one of your peers that you're looking over to and saying, I am now learning from this person as much or oftentimes more so than they they were learning from me
0: you bring up such a great point there uh, in the distinction that each person is their own individual and, and you can pick certain things and, and develop your own self there, but not trying to emulate exactly. I, I just love that point. So I just wanted to hit on that again. I know we've got to wrap up here in a minute. I would love to know about your reading because I, I know you're widely read and I, I'm wondering what resources over the years uh, have you continued to go back to? Um, yeah. So I get in these
1: waves of, of reading, um, but I'll get into a space and like, so not surprisingly, given what's going on, I've read, I don't know, three tombs on pandemics uh, over the last few months and listened to, I don't know, a dozen lectures or so around immunology, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I tend to get into these spaces. That's how my, my brain works. And I'll kind of soak it all up and then move on um and I've sort of always been like that I remember one summer when I was I don't know 13 I I read every Kurt Vonnegut novel uh which is a bad idea because they all kind of interplay with each other and you get lost in it so you can't remember what's going on at any given time but um went through a Stephen King phase read everything by Stephen King that I could in like two years or whatever I don't know but um so I think um that pattern has always stuck with me and I think again, it depends on how your brain's wired. It's always been a really effective one for me to get kind of deeply immersed in stuff. Um, But for texts that I've gone back to over the years, um, I studied philosophy in college. And so I think there are certain bits there all the way back to like the ancients. And I was, you know, real philosophers are, are just sort of brilliant people all around like they're mathematicians and scientists etc all kind of bundled into one um the beauty of studying philosophy was as i realized i wasn't that smart um but <laughs> knew it knew enough to say there, there's there's we have been asking the same questions for you know since there is there have been smart people writing things down and so going back and uh revisiting texts uh by the classics, uh, Aurelius, Plato, Socrates, writings, thinkings, etc. you know, uh, not to grandstand and you, I'm good enough to get through like a page of something like that before I have to stop. But if I've been consistent about one thing since I graduated college, it's been going back and visiting some of the, some of the thinking and writing of, of the ancients. And that was just going to put in my DNA from what I studied in, in school
0: i know you've hit on a few biographies uh in in past interviews any ones that you've really enjoyed over the years um
1: yeah the ones that probably have stuck with me the most not surprisingly have been um military leaders even though you know i'm not this sort of beat your chest you've got to be in the military sort of person i really enjoyed my experiences there i got you know a lot out of that chapter of my life. But um, so I I can connect with with a military biography. I think what's special about military biographies, honestly, is that they're the more senior folks, their lives are so recorded so that the biographies can be incredibly precise. You know, think of relative to their time, what we knew about, um, you know, uh, a grant or an Eisenhower or sort of fill in the blank. Um, now we're all like digitally fingerprinted and we know where you were every minute of every day. Um, and so that's much more common if you wanted to take the effort and go back and kind of figure stuff out about somebody. But it, what's unique about, you know, an Eisenhower is just given the intensity and, and positions he was in for so many years from being a, you know, a, a senior-ish officer serving under MacArthur all the way to running the European theater to being president, very unique to his times and his peer group we sort of have a a really accurate record of where he was day by day, if not minute by minute at some points. So you can write these incredibly rich, rich in context, uh, biographies. And so I've always really enjoyed those. And one of the things, so Stan, McChrystal and I have been teaching a, a, a leadership seminar together for, for years, um, outside of our consulting practice. And one of the points we always make to our students is don't, When you think of, when you read the biography or you think of the great person in history, don't remember him or her, like the statue, right? Try The reason you read a biography, in my opinion, is to try to put yourself into their headspace. These are real people try to, which is why it's important if you wanna really understand a leader, you have to read left and right. You have to read outside of that single biography about the times, the history, what, was, what were living conditions like? What was the economy like? The things that a biographer might might not necessarily dive have the space to dive deeply into so that you can put yourself in their shoes and try to think through the lens of this was a normal-ish person, right? And every day, back to our earlier discussion, they were making decisions about what they were going to do, who they wanted to be, how they were going to treat their family and friends, et cetera. And what, what we always encourage, the takeaway there should be, Anyone around this table could be the next Eisenhower, the next Lincoln. There's nothing saying that won't happen. Um, so don't think that because there's a statue of Lincoln that on the the night he was killed, he thought of himself as that leader. You know, And, and I love that using that example, because if you really put yourself in President Lincoln's position, imagine that moment, the night he was killed. So, you know, they decide to go down to the theater. Um, The the country is in complete disarray. It's unknown whether it will really come back together. He has the lives of thousands of people resting on his soul. His wife has gone through major bouts of mental illness. He's lost a child and then he gets shot, right? Do you think he thought of himself as this heroic figure? um with a, with a massive statue at the center of our, our our nation's capital on that night probably not he was probably exhausted and thinking what the heck am i doing right now and that's that's what that's why i love reading biographies like that where you can really put yourself in the shoes of those leaders and say am i going to make the decisions every day that it takes to become someone that can dr- drive change when 99 times out of 100 it will be easier to take the easy road, right? And those leaders consistently say, no, I need to do the next hard thing because that's where the real change can come from.
0: Chris, you were joking earlier uh, about LeBron James and not being in that category there's people who play games uh, and there's people who play games and they're just at such a higher level in those games. Uh, And I can honestly say you are absolutely one of those people. (laughs) This is, this has been just such a treat for me uh, getting to learn some of these takeaways here. So I love this final one before we wrap up here. If you were sitting down to interview anyone in the world that are alive, that's, that's not a family member or someone you just want to sit down with again, who would that be for you?
1: Huh? It's an interesting question. Um, I would, I would answer this differently on any given day, right? <laughs> Cause there's just countless, <laughs> countless folks that it would be fascinating to sit down and, and, and talk with. Um, I think given, and I'm going to put aside the current sort of social unrest and everything going on prior to that my life has been so immersed in and, and knock-on effect from the events of 9-11, et cetera, et cetera, that honestly, I would probably pick one of the critical figures that led to that decades-long series of events that got us to 9-11, that got us to where we are are now. And that could be someone from... The original sort of pan-Arab state leadership um, that really had a, a mindset of that that ended up being sort of a false bill of goods, and really getting inside their head saying, "Is is this just a personal personal goal? Are you or, or do you think this can really work?" Or someone from the the terrorist side, like uh, Zawahiri, who is by all accounts still alive, so may not fit your category, but sort of the original thinker on the egyptian side of of the al qaeda uh terror networks and saying is this what you thought would happen like it would be really interesting for me to try to get inside their head so you know some of the smart original founders in that space and trying to map their desired end state versus what has actually unfolded as as a result but ask me tomorrow and i'm sure i'd have a totally different answer
0: yeah, no, Chris. There's there's too much good stuff here. I, I really hope that we can sit down at some point uh, in person and do a round two here. Uh, but in closing, here, of course, we're going to have everything linked up to the McChrystal Group, uh, to the Book One Mission. Anywhere else you think the listeners sh- would be interested, or they should go to stay connected with you? Um,
1: yeah, I'm at also Chris on on Twitter. I'm not a big uh, not a big uh, social media person, or um, yeah, our website's probably the best. Uh, the best place where people can ping me on LinkedIn. We, we, we distribute a lot of stuff through our LinkedIn accounts.
0: Great. We're going to have all that linked up, but once again, Chris Fossil, I, I truly mean this. You've been impactful uh, as someone for me to learn from throughout the years. And I just really do appreciate and uh, thank you for this conversation.
1: No, thank you. Great, great discussion. Awesome questions. So good luck with everything and, and let me
0: know if I can be helpful. You guys made it to the end of another episode of what got you there. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.